I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, we have another double feature episode for you. Later on in the show, we'll be hearing from Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. and its inequality.org website to discuss the skyrocketing global wealth inequality that has happened since the pandemic. But first up, we're going to be speaking with Ambassador Akbar Ahmed, a scholar who has worked tirelessly to foster an understanding in the West of the Islamic world. In other words, Ambassador Ahmed's work has been to show that there is a bridge between the East and the West and to foster understanding between cultures. His latest effort in this regard is the new book, The Flying Man, Aristotle, and the Philosophers of the Golden Age of Islam, Their Relevance Today. It's a book that provides, dare I say, a parallax view on the Islamic world and its contributions to culture over the centuries. In addition to that, we'll also be discussing the Pakistani statesman Muhammad Ali Jinnah and the cinematic biopic of him starring the late great thespian Sir Christopher Lee, which was written by Ambassador Ahmed. We'll also get his brief comments on Afghanistan in the conversation to follow and much, much more. But before we get to that, a word from one of our sponsors, namely the transmedia storyteller, Joseph Matheny, the pioneer of alternate reality games, who has a brand new audio drama, Zen, X-E-N, the Zen of the Other, now available on your favorite podcast apps, And let me tell you, it's a mind bender, but I think you'll be able to gather that from the following promo. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. 
Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen, the Zen of the other, the audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. Welcome to Parallax Views, Ambassador Akbar Ahmed, author of the recent book, The Flying Man, Aristotle and the Philosophers of the Golden Age of Islam, their relevance today. How are you doing today? Thank you so much, JJ, and thank you for inviting me to your show. It's a, it's a big honor for me, so I'm delighted that I'm talking to you. So, uh, Ambassador Ahmed, I'm a huge fan of your work, and I think it's very important work that you're doing. I think there's a connective tissue that runs through all of your work, whether we're talking about uh, a book like The Thistle and the Drone or The Flying Man, the most recent book. And I think the connective tissue is that you're trying to provide a perspective that allows us to overcome a lot of the perceived divide uh, that many see between the East and the West. You're trying to promote understanding. So I'm curious, uh, how did you come to try and find that mutual understanding between cultures? What, what led you towards this project? Well, uh, you what you've just said, what you observed, is exactly what the Grand Mufti of Bosnia, the very scholarly man who had read my works, in fact, had translated my works into Bosnian. Uh, he said this in a blurb he gave for this particular book, The Flying Man. Uh, I've really spent almost a lifetime now trying to approach my subject as a scholar. And I'm very, very scrupulous because everything I write is fact-based, is supported by evidence. So my aim has been philosophically, if you like, to try to point out what is common in us between cultures, between civilizations. And that not only instructs me, informs me, but also excites me because I learn so much from other cultures when I'm reading say Judaism or in this particular study, Maimonides, his great works in Andalusia. I'm excited and inspired. Or St. Thomas Aquinas writing about Christianity and yet reflecting some of the Islamic scholars uh, so I really feel that this is an area of study that needs to be further developed, particularly, JJ, in our world, you know, with so much 
division, so much hatred, so much violence you're seeing across, across the planet. And as a Muslim, I'm very conscious that Muslims very often are at the receiving end of this, this violence and this negative publicity. There's so much prejudice and, and even Orientalism in discussion of Islam uh, today. And I, I think it really overlooks the, the rich history of Islam. So what do you think the main misconceptions people have about Islam today in, in the West? Well, uh, this is a very important question, and I hope your viewers and listeners are going to take heed of the answer I'm going to give, which is that today Islam has broadly, broadly, I'm not talking about everyone, but broadly a negative uh, impression in the media with lots of people, because the people know very little about Islam. Even this age, the golden age that I'm writing about, is not called the golden age. It's called the dark ages. So if you go to a museum and you say, where are the uh, sections for the dark ages? They'll point to you the medieval ages, which will be called the dark ages. So this golden age of Islam, almost a thousand years of history, producing some of the most extraordinary scholars, astronomers, mathematicians, poets, it's all, it's all disappeared. And when I talk about the golden age, JJ, it's very important to note, I'm talking about not Muslim philosophers, I'm talking about philosophers of the golden age, which means that they were philosophers at that time in that golden age who were Jewish, who were Christian, who were of other faiths, and they were able to interact with each other. This is what I found the most exciting. So I would like people to know that there was a time when Muslims are very, very much at the cutting edge of all these great sciences, scholarship, adventure. For example, one of the first people to try flight, to try to uh, fly in the air, and he flew for about 10 minutes, was Ibn Firnas from Cordoba. He went up on a hill. Again, he was a philosopher, writer, mathematician, astronomer, but he also wanted to experiment with flight and he did fly. And as a testimony to him, to honor him in Cordoba, if you visit it, you'll see a big, beautiful bridge in the shape of wings to honor him. And there's a crater on the moon uh, named after him. So these uh, great uh, scholars and philosophers were making an impact on the world. And this is something not known because when you Correlate this image, a negative image of Islam, an Islam of uh, violence, an Islam that doesn't give rights to women, Islam uh, hates uh, non-Muslims and so on. And then you correlate it to the reality in the Muslim world and the Islamic history that we are talking about. You suddenly realize there's more to Islam than these negative images. And we really need to understand that because with these negative images, we've created a huge gap, a chasm between Muslims and non-Muslims. And it's important we try to close that gap in that chasm because whether we like it or don't like it, the fact is that there are almost 2 billion Muslims on this planet, one out of four citizens uh, on the, on, uh, in the world. And they will be there in whatever shape their countries are, they will remain. So it's important that we have a good working relationship with the majority, if not all of them, at least the majority of them. And also, I was hoping you could talk about the role of knowledge and scholarship and intellectual rigor in Islam historically, uh, because that's a very real thing you get into in this book. Yes, because again, another thing I hear, another criticism is, and it's thrown about when people say it's a Judeo-Christian tradition of scholarship, 
and they just drop Islam. Islam doesn't seem to exist even in that discussion, uh, assuming that Islam was not capable of thinking because Islam was religious. But in fact, JJ, the person who brought rational thinking into mainstream European thinking is Ibn Rushd, a very famous name known as Averroes in the West. He was so influential that St. Thomas Aquinas and Maimonides, Thomas Aquinas quoted him over 500 times, not always agreeing with every point, but agreeing and disagreeing, but influenced by him. Now, his greatest contribution, he's a great philosopher. He read and translated the Greeks, Plato, Aristotle, and so on, especially Aristotle. His great contribution to European thought, remember they're in Cordoba, which is Europe. His great contribution is that he was able to show that you can balance your faith, your religion, with science, progress, rationality. And that is the argument that he presented and supported by his research. And that was picked up then particularly by Christian priests and had a huge influence on their thinking for the next several centuries. So yes, Islamic scholarship at its height was able to reconcile these two very strong streams which we see in our modern times as two separate streams. You know, I follow the uh, debates with uh, uh, Professor Dawkins and uh, Stephen Fry and the late Christopher Hitchens and so on. So one has the impression that religion and science and uh, rationality are two completely different things. Now, Islamic history has shown, uh, again, uh, centuries ago, that they are not only compatible, but that they feed one into the other. And some of the greatest thinkers in the golden age of Islam were people who were religious and yet deeply, deeply scientific in their thinking and made a huge contribution in thought, independent thought. And by the way, often in trouble with the authorities. So that um, very often they were at the edge of uh, being expelled or being in trouble with the authorities. And sometimes they did get into uh, trouble with the authorities like Ibn Rushd at the end uh, of his life, very tragically, he was expelled and spend the last few years in, in uh, sort of exile. So I want to get into The Flying Man, the, the title. What is The Flying Man thought experience and, and what is its relation to other thinkers? Um, I know we could even think of uh, figures like Nietzsche when talking about The Flying Man. Yes, uh, absolutely, JJ. I was fascinated because this is one of the great uh, concepts in philosophy, not just Islamic philosophy, but philosophy. And he's right up there with uh, Plato's uh, The Cave, The Shadows in the Cave. It's up there with Nietzsche's concept of the Superman. Very often these concepts are misunderstood and misused. But the flying man also could be because when you come across a term like the flying man, you think, is it Superman? Is it Batman? Is it some Marvel comic hero? But the flying man is an experiment, what Avicenna called a thought experiment. And it is an experiment in which you visualize an individual, a man, suspended in air. His eyes are closed. He's got a bandage on his eyes, so he can't see. His hands are extended, stretched out. His legs are extended and stretched out, so he's in midair. And in that experiment, the individual comes to realize that he has a thinking soul, which is independent of the essence of his body. So in a sense, he's establishing the soul as distinct from the material that is the body. And this um, experiment uh, and the, the implications of this experiment then uh, lead us into discussions of the afterlife and is there a soul and will there be a soul? This was also a big 
debate, as you know, at the, in the Middle Ages, and certainly at that time in, in Islamic history. So the thought experiment assumed a great importance, and it is still considered as one of the great philosophic uh, experiments. And if you could, uh, another figure that comes up in the, in the title is uh, Aristotle. So what is the relationship between, uh, I would say, Islamic philosophers and Western or just non-Islamic philosophers? And what, what can we learn about how, you know, philosophy, I think there's cross-pollination between cultures. There's always been a dialogue. Absolutely. Absolutely. The influence of the Greeks, and remember, we are talking about a time when Europe had completely forgotten the Greeks. So at this time, there are no Greeks in Europe. I mean, the great philosophers of, of Greece. And the Muslims discover the Greeks, and for centuries, they absorb them, they translate them, as in the case of Ibn Rushd, they enhance them, which means they take the arguments and raise them to a different level expanding on them, giving their own ideas, interacting with them. And I asked the same question, JJ. Why do Muslim philosophers, including Ibn Rushd, tilt more towards Aristotle rather than Plato or Socrates? And it was a very interesting um, answer. The answer was that Plato emphasizes the theoretical, the conceptual, the spiritual, if you like. And Christianity always tilted more towards Plato. Whereas Aristotle talks more about the practical, the pragmatic, the here and the now. And remember, Islam is then uh, triumphant, uh, very much a dominant world civilization, dealing with hardcore practical solutions and problems. They want something that is concrete that will help them. And Aristotle, in that sense, uh, suits them much more. So Aristotle becomes very popular in the Muslim world. And uh, uh, the word in the Muslim world, for Aristotle becomes Aristotle, so that people would use this word. Of course, also Plato and Socrates, so that in the Muslim world, if someone's friend is uh, a bit arrogant or talking too much as a philosopher, they'd say, who do you think you are? Do you think you're Socrates or do you think you're Plato? Uh, uh, so these, these names have come into mainstream Muslim culture and Muslim society. But remember the context, the point that the context that I'm giving you is roughly the 9th to the 13th centuries, very roughly, very broadly. And this is a time when these Muslim philosophers and writers are really reaching the heights. As you cannot imagine it. Firdosi writes the greatest epic in the Persian language. Now just listen to what he does. 60,000 couplets, which is twice as long as Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey combined. Just think of the, the scale of what he's done. And this is considered one of the greatest works in the Persian language. Beautiful, beautiful, epic poem. Uh, this is what they were doing. Um, Avicina, the great uh, philosopher who gave the book of medicine, a book that would be used in Europe in European uh, hospitals for the next several centuries. He wrote about 400 books. I mean, this just mind, the mind boggles. Uh, you had people like Ibn Arbi and Rumi. We know of Rumi in America. He's very popular in America. They were writing mystic verses. They were reaching out to other faiths. So again, you see in, in the media today, you see Islam as a narrow-minded religion. And yet here, these, these very respected, distinguished, mystic poets and writers like Ibn Arbi and, and Rumi, just not only reaching out, uh, take the example of both of them. Both of them wrote particularly 
of their love and devotion for Jesus Christ. In fact, Rumi wrote so many poems about Jesus that he has a whole section in a book uh, on Rumi, easily available here in the United States, called the Rumi Poems. The whole section on uh, the Jesus poems, sorry, the Jesus poems. And Ibn Arabi, of course, has this vision when he's a young man, he has a vision of Jesus, Jesus Christ, who comes to aid him and guide him. And he says, he's all my life, I've been inspired by Jesus. He's my guide. He's my special friend. And he's so influenced by the idea of Jesus as his guide that like Jesus, he gives up all his uh, material possessions and he goes off wandering in the Muslim world uh, as, as a kind of um, uh, mendicant, as a, as a beggar almost, to discover the truth, uh, follow the path of austerity and compassion and love for all humanity. So it's, it's a different time. And of course, I'm not saying that this is always so ideal because you all also have all kinds of uh, violence and conflict and dynasties rising and falling. But within that, you have people like Ibn Arbi and Rumi. And the, the lesson I wanted to extract from this was in our time with, with the climate change and the climate crisis and people ignoring the fact that this planet is almost exhausted and we are in a very, very dangerous zone. Uh, the pandemic is still there, still out there, although it may be declining. Then the religious violence, the uh, ethnic violence, which is global now. What do we take from these great uh, philosophers of that time, of that golden age? And I really felt that Ibn Arabi, people like Rumi, they have a great lesson for us because they too, JG, and this is important to remember, were living in times of great change and great violence. Because at that time, just picture to yourself, if you're a Muslim living in the Muslim world or a Christian or a Jewish person, that in the middle of that, uh, the Middle East, what is now the Middle East, you had the Mongols coming like a tsunami of violence and destroying Baghdad. 1258, everything comes to an end. The greatest Muslim empire, the Abbasid, is just destroyed. The libraries are ransacked, all the books are thrown into the rivers. The irrigation systems built up over the centuries and destroyed. Uh, and that whole structure brought down. On the Western side, so this is the Eastern side, from the Western side, you had wave upon wave of the Crusaders coming uh, from Germany, France, arriving in the Middle East and just slaughtering anything they could see. Jews, Christian, local Christian, they didn't recognize them, and Muslims. So in the midst of all this, these great figures are telling us how to survive and how to still continue being human and aspiring to the finest of our own ideals. So Maimonides, who also expelled from Cordoba and finds his way with great difficulty over North Africa, he has to hide in caves, and he arrives in Cairo and eventually becomes the main physician, the main medical advisor to the ruler of the Egyptian um, uh, world. I mean, he's the Sultan of Egypt, Salahuddin, the legendary Sultan. Maimonides becomes his medical physician and advisor. So just think of uh, the world where the greatest Muslim ruler has an, a medical advisor who is Jewish, who's a rabbi, very respected, and he writes his great book, The Guide to the Perplexed, at that time. So he's also looking at the world and saying, all right, how can I help people understand this world better and still maintain their faith? So again, balancing faith with uh, rationality, science, and progress. It sounds as if we can find in these great philosophers and Islamic figures, you know, essentially the ideas of uh, humanism and, and the humanist tradition. This is what we in the West call humanism, enlightenment. 
And we again forget when we say enlightenment, humanism, that all these ideas are coming from Andalusia, from the Muslim world. The figures I'm mentioning to you are exactly that. They are, in fact, creating the Renaissance man. If you look at any of these figures that I mentioned to you, they really are Renaissance men. They are scholars, they are poets, they are uh, astronomers, they are mathematicians. They are the full man, the full man or woman, by the way. The women had a very important role in this. Uh, people often say, oh, Muslims uh, didn't promote women. It was a time where women had great, great influence. Ibn Arabi's mentor was a woman, a Sufi woman in, in Andalusia. And the woman who created the first university in Fez, in what is now Morocco, which was created then and today it's still extended, it's still flourishing, was a woman. She created Fatima, she created uh, this, this great university. So women had an important role to play. Of course, our times are different, those times are different, but women certainly had a role, the men had a role, and they were creating a, an idea of society based on knowledge, what I call the ilm ethos. Ilm is the, the, the word for knowledge, learning, knowledge. And I believe that ilm was very, very much prized at that time by rulers and by scholars. And irrespective of whether you're a Muslim or not a Muslim, ilm was respected. And the ethos of that time was the ilm ethos. So if you turned up at a place and you were a great scholar, you'd be respected. I gave you the example of Maimonides. He turns up in Cairo and there he is. He's the medical advisor or physician to the greatest ruler of that time. Ibn Khaldun is another example. He loses everything. He escapes from North Africa. He has some problems with the local um, lords. He turns up in Cairo and he's appointed as, uh, as a judge, an Islamic judge there. So there was a kind of currency uh, of knowledge and of scholarship. And that, uh, I think, is something that we need to keep in mind because we are also in America. It's a society which has great respect for learning and for books and for scholarship. And uh, this is what has made America uh, such a great uh, power in the world and has given it its great uh, history. So I just had a, a few more questions. Uh, and one of Please. them, actually, you had mentioned uh, Christopher Hitchens and, and Stephen Fry. And I, I believe you you had actually met uh, Hitchens in real life at one point while he was uh, alive, if I if I remember correctly, in, in my research yes. leading up yes. to this. Yes. But I, I was going to say, wh why is it that these figures like Christopher Hitchens or Stephen Fry, why do they miss a lot of this uh, rich history that Islam has to offer? You know, uh, JJ, this is a question that, because, you know, I, I must put this on record. I have great affection for some of these figures. Uh, Stephen Fry, for example, I'm a great admirer. I'm a fan of his work. His, uh, uh, you know, not only the Jeeves and uh, Worcester series uh, in which he played uh, Jeeves so brilliantly, but his lectures, his work, his writing, his recent books on uh, Greek mythology. I have great respect and affection for his work. But this is a question I ask myself because I see and hear these figures and they're very civilized and very polite and they have these debates. But then suddenly in the middle of the debate, they'll swing towards Islam and they seem to attack Islam almost irrationally. And I find that very interesting because you suddenly have very civilized uh, people talking about religions in a, in a scholarly way and criticizing them and rejecting religion. These are, after all, um, uh, very much self-consciously the new atheists. But they pick up Islam then as the ultimate bad religion. And why do they pick up Islam? Because it's violent, it doesn't have a history, it hasn't contributed anything to culture and society. 
And I've just said a cursory glance at Islamic history will disabuse them of these uh, ideas and these, I would say, prejudices. So really, they need to step back a little bit, uh, including Professor Dawkins, who is also a great uh, critic of Islam, and read up a little bit on Islamic history and appreciate that, like many other histories, like other cultures and societies, it had its ups and downs, but it also had many, many ups and many, many contributions, which they need to recognize because that is part of world history. And if they base their judgments on scholarship, as they say they do, then they need to take that into account. So it sounds like what you would hope that um, non-Islamic readers of the book and, and listeners of this conversation we're having get out of all of this is that, you know, there is a rich history to Islam and there's a lot of convergence uh, between Islamic culture and non-Islamic culture. What do you hope that uh, maybe Islamic listeners of my program or Islamic readers of your book get out of uh, The Flying Man and this conversation? Yeah, I hope that it will help move the discussion more towards a civilized discourse, a greater richness in the uh, exchange rather than this very abrasive uh, attacks on Islam, one-sided attacks, because very often Muslims are not involved in all these dialogues and debates. I don't see many Muslims. In, in, in fact, uh, when I see the news, uh, ma the mainstream channels in America, I don't want to mention them, but you know who I mean, the two or three prominent channels. Very often you'll see a discussion on Islam. You may have three or four people and there won't be a single Muslim. So how are they? I mean, can you imagine a discussion on African-Americans or on Judaism without a single person representing that particular community being present? You can't imagine it because people are courteous enough to invite someone from that community, except with Islam. So you'll have four people who very often know little about Islam, very often have some kind of prejudice against Islam, some kind of negative feelings, and they'll be slamming Islam, happily going out, giving opinions. Sometimes they can't even pronounce the names within Islam. And yet that is the opinion that the great American public is going to see and absorb. And that's what really worries me because I'm always concerned as a teacher on campus about students. Uh, I have every term, I have a, a very full class, uh, lots of enthusiastic young men and women coming to my class. And I, I talk to them about my subject, which is Islam, and they themselves say that, you know, Professor, we are just not taught anything in our high schools. So when, by the time we come to you, we know almost nothing. And what we know is taken from the media, which is often negative. And these are youngsters who want to go off and join um, the, the CIA or the FBI or the State Department or some firm or company, which would maybe also land them in the Muslim world. And they have to keep in mind that the Muslim world means almost 60 nations in the world. Very often we have very good relations with them. America has many, many very strong allies in the Muslim world. And they may find themselves there and it would help them a great deal to have a good idea, a good working idea of what Islam is all about. I was going to add to that, you know, it's interesting when we look at, say, um, Afghanistan, which you've done anthropological fieldwork on Afghanistan, I think a lot of Americans aren't even aware of the, the different groups within Afghanistan. There's the Pashtun, but there's also uh, other groups of people. And we need to understand uh, all these different peoples and their cultures and their differences and their overlaps in order to uh, work with these countries. Deji, the, you 
talked about Afghanistan and that saddens me so much because first of all, I see what America, which went in with good intentions, it went into Afghanistan. Its idea was to help the Afghans. That's why it went into Afghanistan. And yet 20 years later, you see the debacle in Afghanistan and you see the poverty there and the hardship there with kids. And I see this on television, on the BBC and so on. There are all these special reports. And you see little children, three, four-year-old kids, boys and girls, without shoes. They don't have food to eat. And it's freezing at this time in Afghanistan. It's very, very cold. And I say, my God, what happened to us? We went in there. We spent billions and trillions of dollars. Thousands of people died, Americans and non-Americans. And we came out with nothing. So I feel so sorry because this adventure, this, this period of the American invasion into Afghanistan could have been very, very different. And it could have made a huge impact on the Afghans and on us where we could have said, here's an example of where we actually went in and helped a nation rebuild itself. Because remember, they'd been through decades of a very, very tough period where the Soviets had come in and almost destroyed Afghanistan and the Taliban came, almost destroyed Afghanistan. So the American wave, as it were, was the third big wave into Afghanistan. So I, I, I feel because I've written on this subject and I feel very, very bad because uh, somehow it just didn't work out either for the Afghans or for us uh, here in America. So before closing out, uh, I wanted to devote the, the final portion of our conversation uh, to someone you've written about and, and helped wrote a, a screenplay about, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. And I, this is how I first learned of you. Uh, I'm a big fan of the actor Christopher Lee. And when Christopher Lee was live and would be asked about what he thought his most important film was, he would always say Jinnah because it allowed people to understand uh, the Islamic world a little bit better, Western audiences especially, and I was wondering if you could tell my audience who Muhammad Ali Jinnah was, his importance to Pakistan, and what he can teach us uh, about the Islamic world. Well, those of you who've seen uh, the film Gandhi would have seen that uh, Jinnah was played in that film, but played in a very negative, uh, negative manner. So it's a great film. It won many awards and uh, justifiably, and uh, Ben Kingsley was brilliant. But the Jinnah character was very wrongly, incorrectly depicted, and I felt very strongly about that because I felt genuinely, I admired Jinnah, like you, I've read about Jinnah, I have great regard for him because he virtually single-handedly created the nation of Pakistan, which for Pakistanis was the biggest blessing because Jinnah for Pakistanis is a kind of Jefferson and Washington and Franklin all rolled into one. So you can imagine the status he has in Pakistan. And it's an extraordinary story because he tried very hard right up to the last minute to pull back from the brink, but constantly felt he was betrayed. They were the opposite party, which is the Congress party then, would not deliver. And he began to feel that if he, in, in, independence came to India and the Muslims were not given their rights or protection or some guarantee of protection, his community would be in trouble. And Jinnah was ultimately the spokesman, the advocate for the Muslim community. And so he went over, went over into the a demand for Pakistan. It's a very dramatic story because at that time, if you know the uh, bit of history, you know that the great figures of history were Gandhi, who was a great figure, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Nehru, the first prime minister of India, uh, Viceroy, Mountbatten. These are gigantic figures. And there was Jinnah. So there were four figures. 
But very often when you read the history, Jinnah will not be featured. And again, Jinnah will be depicted as a, in a very negative light, very negative light. Oh, he broke uh, India, he broke the unity of India. On the contrary, he tried very, very hard. And that is why some of the leading Hindu leaders, leading Hindu leaders called Jinnah the ambassador of Hindu-Muslim unity. He was married to a non-Muslim. The only time he married and that uh, his marriage ended badly, she, the, the wife died. It was an unhappy marriage because Jinnah was a very formal, um, serious person who just really focused on on his work and his, as, as his daughter, who I was privileged to interview for the documentary made on Jinnah, said, she said, my father gave his life for the cause of Pakistan. He, he literally just gave sacrifice his life fighting for Pakistan and uh, ruining, allowing his health, health to be ruined. But in the end, in the end, did he just think of what he achieved? He created then, 1947, the largest Muslim nation on earth. And when Pakistanis who looked at on India and said, wow, whatever the case, we may not get on with India, but they have democracy, they have a secular, liberal philosophy of administration, people can live in peace, people of all religions. And when they see what's happening now, and they see the violence against the Muslims, where Muslims are openly lynched or killed or clubbed to death, you're hearing about uh, the persecution of girls wearing a, a head covering, they're being literally chased down by mobs and uh, assaulted. When Pakistanis see that, they again bless Jinnah, and they say he gave us a homeland. And you know, some Pakistanis even wrote books about Jinnah and called him the Moses. They said, like, Moses led his people to a land of uh, freedom. This is what Jinnah did for us. He gave us freedom and gave us a land. So however bad or good or corrupt or shaky or wobbly Pakistan is, it is still freedom. And that is what they appreciate about Jinnah. So yes, um, this became a passion of mine. And I started the project. It took me about 10 years. But by the end of it, I had completed a feature film with Christopher Lee in it. And we became great friends in the process. Uh, a documentary, which was shown on Channel 4 in England, an academic book, which was published by Routledge, and a graphic novel, the first graphic novel of Pakistan, all on Jinnah, so that four different sections of society would have different aspects of the Jinnah story, but telling the same story. And of course, as you can imagine, it was a, a real struggle because uh, every Pakistani felt they had the right to interpret Jinnah and no one else did. So I had to face a lot of controversies, but we completed these projects and they're available now. And Christopher Lee was magnificent, absolutely magnificent. Uh, some of the press was negative about him. And again, that was a purely personal reason because one of the editors wanted to play Jinnah. I mean, sometimes people behave in very odd ways. And he put pressure on me and I said, uh, how can you play Jinnah? This is a world-class actor and I want a world-class figure to play Jinnah. And he said, no, no, I, you know, I'm like Jinnah, I'm uh, very ill, I'm dying, I've got TB, and I've, uh, I'm also, I take drugs and so on. He gave some really absurd reasons. So when we just ignored him, he launched into a series of very negative reporting on Jinnah as we arrived. So he began to talk of Christopher Lee, he put his photographs of Lee as Dracula. So front page of the, this newspaper, you'd see Christopher Lee as Dracula, blood dripping down from his teeth and... And headlines would say, this is an insult to Jinnah. And Jinnah is very revered in Pakistan. And they don't even call him Jinnah, they call him Kaid-e-Azam, the great leader. 
So we had a very tough time explaining all this because Mr. Lee, and I give him full marks, he was so passionate about Jinnah. And he would tell me, say, Akbar, what sort of people are these? I'm here to pay tribute to Qaeda Azam because he was one of the greatest men of history. I want to tell the story. And they're attacking me. And if they're attacking me for having played Dracula, then what would the Americans say to Anthony Hopkins, who played an American president and played a murderer? Would he not have access to that role? So it was more than just a film. It raised all sorts of issues. But the great thing is, JJ, we completed it and it's out there. Yeah, and I, I would highly recommend if people haven't seen it, they, they should see the movie, Jinnah. And I, I always appreciate it, what Christopher Lee said about it, which is, you know, we need to understand the Islamic world is a vibrant world. It's not uh, simply uh, the people we hear about uh, in the news. It's not simply uh, hearing about jihadists or al-Qaeda. Al it's a much more vibrant world. And there are so many people from the Islamic world that have fought for peace. And JJ, you're absolutely right, because Jinnah was, if only the Americans understood this, he was the anti-Taliban, because the Taliban hated Jinnah. And you can imagine why. He was very modern. He was openly liberal. He wore suits. He spoke English. He embraced non-Muslims very emphatically. His first and last Christmas was spent in a church with the Christians. So there's a famous uh, episode in my book in which I write that uh, when the Taliban came to discuss peace talks with the chief secretary in Peshawar, they walked in and saw his photograph in the office, which all officers carry his picture. And they turned around and walked out because they said, unless you remove that portrait of Jinnah, we won't talk to you. Just think of it. That is how the Taliban saw Jinnah. And you can understand why he's so important in terms of modern Islam. In terms of modernity, Jinnah is your par excellence model. So completely constitutional. He was a lawyer, believed in the law. And there's an episode in, in my documentary in which um, Zinat Rashid, who's from Karachi, very distinguished family, she told me this uh, story. So I asked her, would you mind if we filmed you? And she agreed. Here's the story. JJ, now just listen to this. Zinat Rashid is a young girl. Jinnah staying with her father in Karachi, a very distinguished man. And she tells him that, you know, there's elections taking place in Karachi, elections for Pakistan. And she said, we went into the polling booth wearing one kind of uh, hijab, the, the black dress, the burqa. And we gave the vote and then came out, changed the burqa, put on another dress, another color, went in and voted again. So each one of us, there was a little group of seven or eight girls. Each one of us voted seven or eight times for you, Mr. Jinnah. So she thought... He's going to be pleased. And JJ, she, she said he froze. And he said, how dare you do this? Do you think I'm going to achieve Pakistan in this way? Go back and have all those votes canceled. Now, you know, this is an example I think any politician anywhere could learn from. It's a very high moral authority. You know, these, these figures are extraordinary, all the Gandhi and Nehru and so on, because in a sense, in a very interesting sense, they were all very British trained. It was that old Victorian element of, you know, the the stiff upper lip, the moral authority of the leader, and they carried that with them. And Jinnah was like that. So there are many stories that I picked up uh, having interviewed um, uh, Jinnah's daughter, Tina, again, in terms of, of how he related to Gandhi and so on, or Zinat Rashid, people who knew him or, and met him. And the purpose of the documentary I made was precisely that, to talk to people who knew him or had interacted with him or were alive when he was alive so that 
they were giving us this. And remember, there were a lot of critics. So several people in the film that we interviewed and who are in the, the documentary were very critical of him. And one of them was uh, Farid Zakaria, the CNN uh, host of GPS. His father, who's a prominent scholar in, in, in India and a political figure in India, and he gave the interview in the documentary. And he was very critical of Jinnah. And he said, oh, he was authoritarian and he was uh, an autocratic, like, not like Gandhi, but the opposite of Gandhi. But, and he said this, he was, there was no one more brilliant and no one had more integrity than Jinnah. And he was outstanding. So, you know, I really wanted this other aspect of Jinnah also. What did his critics think of him? Now, Beverly Nichols, a very famous writer from the West, came to India this just before independence and interviewed Jinnah and then wrote, now note what Beverly Nichols wrote about Jinnah. Jinnah was like a surgeon, like a top flight surgeon compared to the witch doctors that the other politicians were. Because they were literally like witch doctors, they were just patching things, making up things. And Jinnah was very precise and very accurate, very scientific, like a surgeon. That's what they wrote. Well, I'm so glad we were able to talk a little bit about Jinnah there. I think that, you know, in addition to um, relationships between the Islamic world and the Western world, I, I think that there's a possibility of uh, unity between even Islamic people and uh, uh, Hindu people. Very, very important, JJ. This is very important what you raised because I very strongly promote Hindu-Muslim friendship, dialogue, We've lived together for a thousand years, over a thousand years. And most important, figures like Gandhi and Jinnah are figures of who are mutual. Don't forget Jinnah's entire life, most of his life was spent in Bombay. And when he died, he left his will untouched. And his will, the money he had, he was a rich man, he was a very famous lawyer. His will donated to Delhi, Aligarh, and Bombay his old school in Bombay when he was a young boy. So he kept that will, he didn't change it. And he always had that great affection. And when Gandhi died, he several messages he issued, calling him great, great. I think four times he used the phrase great for Gandhi. So yes, these figures can act as shared figures that we share in history. But unfortunately, there's a way of going through India right now where not only Jinnah, but people like Gandhi and Nehru are being not only marginalized, but, but I would say demonized. So. Uh, we have to go through this phase and hopefully, hopefully good sense will prevail and common sense and uh, common good sense will prevail and we'll be able to get together again. I, I've kept you a little bit over here and I want to give you the sort of final word. Uh, what do you think the future could hold, uh, the, the best possible future for uh, Islam and the world? I think the best possible future, JG, lies not only with the non-Muslims, but the Muslims. If the Muslims rediscover their own, the, the essence of their culture, which is based in knowledge, in compassion, in reaching out to non-Muslims. And unfortunately, you see the constant stories that you hear from the Muslim world uh, of uh, non-Muslims being killed. Uh, you, you heard that uh, terrible story of the Sri Lankan man in Pakistan and Sialkot being killed and his body being burned. This is happening in the Muslim world. So my great positive scenario for the Muslim world is they rediscover their strength in compassion and knowledge and the ill mythos and live it. So even Jinnah with his high ideals, I would like Pakistanis to try to live up to those ideals. 
He emphasized uh, compassion for the poor, justice, avoiding nepotism and corruption. He spoke against these things, and particularly, particularly the care of the minorities, the Christians, the Hindus, the Sikhs. He constantly emphasized, and the women, he const constantly emphasized that. So if they can live up to this ideal or strive towards the ideal, that's my great, great dream. Uh, I don't know whether it'll happen in my lifetime. I can only, as one very, very ordinary scholar, keep trying. And for the non-Muslims, I just pray and hope that they will learn a little bit more about Islam so that their very abrasive attitude, which not only puts, the, puts Muslims off, but pushes Muslims away from them and is counterproductive because if their aim is to somehow try to bring the Muslims, the Muslim world into their dialogue and discussion, they end up by pushing them away because you can't have someone abusing and kicking you and expect uh, the person to extend his hand in friendship. And as I've said, I've heard these uh, uh, so-called uh, secularists and atheists talking and they'll talk about everything under the sun. And then the topic will invariably come to Islam and you'd see the frown on their face and they flare up and they speak very negatively. So I only hope and pray that they'll take some time, read about Islam and maybe, maybe embrace uh, Muslims, at least some Muslims that they think are capable of having civilized dialogue with them and understanding that this urge to humanism, humanity, enlightenment ultimately is coming from Andalusia in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, without which you would have not had the Renaissance and then you would not have had the enlightenment in quite the way it did take place. And I just want to add to that. I think that the, the period after 9-11 was a very difficult period for everyone. And I think it led to uh, point blank, just a lot of really horrible Islamophobic sentiments uh, gaining steam in the West. But I think for younger people, we're not buying that Islamophobia as much. I think we're making progress in uh, overcoming uh, the, the sort of long shadow of the war on terror. And my hope is that future generations will, will follow in shedding the prejudices and, and xenophobia uh, that we often have in the West towards the Islamic world. Well said, Jeji, well said. And I can only bless you and pray that you, your sentiment is realized and is successful because it is essential. And I agree with you, my students, the younger students, the recent students who come to my classes, they, are, they genuinely are open and they want to reach out. And the only complaint is they want to understand Islam. And they say we have so little uh, access or understanding, but no one teaches us these things. Just the simplest of things. When we talk about some of the things that we've talked about, they're thrilled. They're so pleased to hear about it. They don't see it in terms of Islam and non-Islam. They see it in terms of knowledge, that we have now learned something that we did not know about. And I want to thank you again, Ambassador Akbar Ahmed, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, JJ, and good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ambassador Akbar Ahmed. Be sure to check out his latest book, The Flying Man, Aristotle, and the Philosophers of the Golden Age of Islam, Their Relevance Today. Next up, we're speaking with Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies and its inequality.org website about his decades-spanning work on the problem of global wealth inequality, which, as it turns out, has skyrocketed since the pandemic. 
Chuck's work is vital as the issue of global wealth inequality continues to rear its head, leading to deep political polarization and social destabilization. We'll discuss all that and more with Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies. But first, a word from one of our sponsors, namely musician Rick Berlin, who has a new book he'd like you to consider picking up, The Big Balloon, A Love Story. I wrote The Big Balloon, A Love Story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Welcome to Parallax Views, Chuck Collins, Director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, uh, where you co-edit inequality.org, uh, also the author of a number of books, uh, including uh, Born on Third Base, a One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality, Bringing Wealth Home, and Committing to the Common Good. And also uh, the most recent book you've written, uh, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Spend Millions to Hide Trillions. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, Joe. So I guess where I want to begin is if I have listeners that are uh, unfamiliar with your work, maybe we could start with how you got into uh, looking at issues of massive wealth inequality. And maybe a, a good place to start is uh, with that book I mentioned, Born on Third Base. Yeah, um, well, for, for over 30 years, I've been working on these issues of the growing income and wealth gap, particularly looking at the concentration of wealth at the top. Um, but, um, you know, I come, I come at it slightly differently. I grew up in a kind of privileged background. Um, I'm the great grandson of the meatpacker, Oscar Meyer. So I kind of won the lottery at birth um, and wrestled with the whole issue of wealth. But it, it gave me some insights because in the 80s and 90s, I was working in working with tenants in apartment buildings and mobile home parks trying to buy their homes. And I sort of had this front row seat to how inequality and wages stagnating was affecting people. But growing up in a wealthy family, I also had this insight into how wealth was multiplying for the ultra wealthy. So just got me interested in inequality. And um, that's the you know, and, and as you mentioned, I co-edited a website called inequality.org. So if your listeners are interested in sort of tracking that, that's a good place to go. If you could, and then we'll get into the recent reports that you've uh, helped write. 
you said you had a front row seat uh, seeing what inequality could do and, and the effects and impacts it was having. What was that front row seat like? What did you see? What I saw was, uh, you know, people uh, seeing their real wages start to flatten or shrink and just trying to survive, feeling more stress, um, really starting in the 80s and then, you know, going up to the present. Um, so I sort of had that, you know, and, and there's a certain mythology that, you know, when you grow up in a wealthy family, you're sort of told this is what justifies inequality. You know, your family works hard, gets up early in the morning, makes whatever good decisions. And therefore, all these other people are not wealthy because there's some deficiency on that part. Well, that was certainly not my experience. Uh, I saw people who are working really hard and not able to get anywhere. So part of it was just seeing the, the harms caused by inequality. Uh, and then, then, of course, seeing, you know, I had wealth that was, you know, put into a trust in my name that was like doubling every three years at the same time. So wealth multiplying was like, wait, wait, how is this possible? And in the end, I was like, I don't really want to benefit from the system that is squeezing most people and enriching a very small number of people. And I think it's important that we clarify some terms just in case I have listeners that are new uh, to these subjects, or I, I have a lot of younger listeners uh, that are just learning about these issues of inequality. And when we talk about wealth, we're not necessarily just talking about um, someone's income. So maybe we could explain what we mean by wealth and really what we mean when we talk about the ultra wealthy, because we're not talking about uh, necessarily someone making uh, you know, 100K at their pharmacy job. We're talking about levels of, of wealth that are you know, uh, pretty mind boggling to the average person. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's important to look at inequality of income because there is this huge gap, say, between CEOs of large companies and average workers. It's like a couple hundred times, you know, uh, CEOs are earning whatever, paying themselves 300, 400 times the average worker in their companies. So income is, you know, gives us one piece of the picture, the, av the flow of money into our lives. But we look a lot about at wealth. Uh, defined as kind of what you own minus what you owe, your assets minus your liabilities. If you own a home, if you have any home equity, savings, financial investments and the like. And that's really important because that's where like multi-generational inequality, multi-generational advantage shows up and multi-generational barriers and racial discrimination also show up. So Wealth is like your cushion, what you have to fall back on. And lots of people don't have any. I mean, one out of five households has zero or negative wealth. 28% uh, of African-American households, zero or negative wealth. So wealth is, is a really important indicator. Um, and just one aside is, you know, during the pandemic, what we've seen is it's almost like it, the existing inequalities were kind of supercharged. If you entered the pandemic kind of economically vulnerable, then you're more vulnerable in some cases. And if you're wealthy, wealth has surged during the pandemic. You know, the 750 US billionaires have seen their wealth go up 2 trillion in two years um, to 5 trillion total wealth. So the, there've been big winners and there've been, you know, more and more people just either lost their lives or lost their livelihoods because of the pandemic. 
I wanted to actually get into that, um, this issue of wealth and the pandemic, because U.S. billionaires, I believe their wealth has surged by 70% or $2.1 trillion during the pandemic, and they're now worth a combined uh, $5 trillion. That's in your report for inequality.org. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, first, it's, you know, during the, the economic meltdown 2008-2009, the wealth of the billionaires actually went down, and it stayed down for a couple of years. It didn't get back to its pre- economic meltdown level. In, in the case of the pandemic, it's quite the opposite. And it's clear that uh, some people have benefited from the pandemic. If you look at where the big wealth surges are, they're often cloud-based technologies, big pharma, um, online gaming, online retail. Um, it's where the big money is betting that, that those companies will triumph coming out of the pandemic, whether it's Amazon or, or DoorDash or any of these sort of newly minted billionaires. So in a way, they have benefited from the pandemic conditions where effectively Main Street and their Main Street competition has been shut down by you know, the, the, the pandemic. Yeah, and we've also seen you know, almost 89 million Americans have lost their jobs. Uh, over 44.9 million uh, have been sickened by the virus. And uh, putting this into perspective, you talk a little bit about Biden's Build Back Better plan and uh, that in relation to uh, the growth of uh, wealth um, during this pandemic. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I should say, unfortunately, I think the death toll is over nine hundred thousand now. You know, in terms of the daily, the daily toll. But um, you know, there have you know one of the things that's been good, believe it or not, coming out of the pandemic is uh, there's been substantial government aid to people who are unemployed, uh, to children, to uh, and 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 you know, Congress was debating the House passed. Uh, this Build Back Better legislation that would do a whole bunch of things. It would create a permanent child tax credit. It would help uh, low low wage and middle income families with children. Uh, it would do a bunch to sort of help build green infrastructure and kind of move us away from dependence on fossil fuels. There's like $2 trillion of investments that would make a huge difference paid for by restoring taxes on the wealthy and on global companies that have gamed the tax code. So, you know, that $2 trillion uh, was going to be, that revenue was going to come from people with most of them from incomes over a million, wealth over 5 million. Um, and what's interesting, Joe, is how popular those proposals are. They, so unfortunately, they've been blocked by, you know, just a couple votes in the Senate um, but Build Back Better is, you know, when we talk about how do you reverse inequality, it would have been, it, it would be a tremendous first step because it would tax the wealthy and it would make investments that lifted up everyone else. And that's really what we need right now. It's really wild to reading your blog on this uh, billionaire wealth, U.S. job losses and pandemic profiteers. I was reading off some of the stats that are provided in that, but what's Interesting is these stats are constantly being updated 
on that blog. So some of the stats I was naming, uh, they, they may have been a bit out of date. And you actually have uh, the updates each month. We, we try. Uh, but yeah, uh, and actually the markets had some ups and downs, you know, since the end of the year. So uh, we don't know if the billionaires have held their $5 trillion threshold, but, you know, still to think about a 70% gain during the pandemic of your wealth and assets, you know, that's why I think we should talk about, talk about taxing extreme wealth. Uh, and you said this right at the beginning, but to be clear, we're talking about people with $30 million or more. That's where most of the wealth gains have gone, you know, not, not, not somebody who's just like you say, $100,000 income because they have a, a good tech job. We're talking about concentrations of wealth that, you know, the, the richest one-tenth of 1%. Um, those are the folks who've seen the biggest wealth gains, the biggest income gains. They've done extremely well in the pandemic, and they can totally afford to pay higher taxes so we can, you know, invest in the recovery and, and reducing inequality. Now, you were interviewed, I think, by the Chronicle of Philanthropy, or you spoke with them uh, recently uh, about their Philanthropy 50 list. And you had this to say about philanthropy during the pandemic. Uh, you said, from this list, you would not know that we're living through a global pandemic. And you would not know that as a society, we're grappling with racial inequality. This gift list is completely disconnected from the reality of our society right now. Could you talk about this and also your report, Gilded Giving uh, 2020, how wealth inequality distorts philanthropy and imperils democracy? Yeah, the, the Chronicle uh, Philanthropy does this uh, annual survey of the 50 biggest donations of the year. And uh, I have to say, I was, I was completely uninspired by this list. It was, it was as if the, the richest people in the society were living in a completely different planet than the rest of us. The focus of most of these gifts were, I would call them legacy gifts. They're just kind of like universities, some medical centers, bricks and mortar hospitals where you're going to have your name, you know, your, the, the wing of the hospital or university named after you. Um, and yeah, you, you would, looking at that funding list, you'd be like, oh, and, and the other thing is a lot of the super wealthy don't even give directly to charity. Some of those biggest gifts are to their own private foundations or donor advised funds. So the money isn't necessarily even moving directly to qualified charities. Um, and this is part of a larger trend. Um, and we did this report, um, uh, what we call gilded giving or about this trend of top heavy philanthropy, meaning as inequality grows, what you and I are talking about is that wealth keeps funneling upward to the top one-tenth of 1%. Some of that uh, comes back to society in the form of charitable giving, but it's pretty uninspiring and distorted. It's not really, you know, looking at this, there's no major gifts around climate disruption. Uh, no gifts substantially dealing with the racial equity issue. Uh, and the, and the, 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 you know, here, here as a society, we're, we're grappling with the racial wealth divide and, and what this all means, but you wouldn't know it from looking at this donation list. Um, and this is what we think of as the peril of billionaire philanthropy, meaning the more money 
that goes to charities that comes from the ultra wealthy, the more it kind of distorts the priorities of the nonprofit charity sector. Um, and the other troubling trend is giving by regular folks, giving by low and middle income people has been steadily going down over 20 years. So almost all the growth in new giving is from the ultra wealthy. And they just have different priorities than you and I might in terms of where we would give the money. So, you know, I think, I think a lot of people hear about wealth inequality and they think, well, isn't it great? The billionaires, they give to charity. Some of them have foundations. Bill Gates gives a lot of money away. Yes, that's true. And some of that, you know, there are some, there are some exceptions to what I'm talking about. There are people like Jack Dorsey, who was the founder of Twitter, former CEO, uh, Mackenzie Scott, who used to be married to Jeff Bezos. They've been doing really interesting stuff, moving billions of money to organizations trying to solve real problems. But so they're the exceptions. But for the most part, this, this uh, wealth is not really fixing the most serious challenges in our society. And it's kind of like a PR stunt. It's almost like a sort of virtue washing. You know, I'm going to make my reputation look better because I'm going to be giving money to charity. But the, the key point is charity may do some useful work, but it's not a substitute for a fair tax system and uh, having wealthy people pay their fair share. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of voices that, that I've heard in the past, especially when I was uh, younger and going through a regrettable sort of libertarian phase where there was this idea that charity can fix all the problems. We, we can just have charity. Uh, you know, we, we don't need all this taxation stuff. Who, who wants uh, their income and, and their wealth uh, getting taxed? But I, I think it's, it's sort of like the issue with uh, trickle-down economics. I think now we're seeing uh, trickle-down uh, did not work out the way we thought it would. I, you know, I would call it voodoo economics. And I, I think we're seeing the same thing with this hope that charity could uh, solve all the big problems. I, I think that's a, a really good way to point to it. And I guess my point is, yeah, trickle-down philanthropy isn't the answer. Um, and now, you know, the wealthy do give differently than everyone else. They, their priorities are different. And that's what's reflected when you look at these 50 biggest gifts. Could you explain that a little bit? Like, yeah. how are they different? Well, one is that their priorities tend to be, you know, less around solving deep systemic problems, like inequality, like the climate crisis, like racial inequity. Um, part of it is that they give to their intermediaries. So here, you know, one of the reasons why you and I should care about this is that these wealthy folks reduce their taxes by giving to charity, but that could be their own private foundation. They could, you know, I could create the Chuck Collins Foundation, park a billion dollars there. I have a legal requirement that I have to give away 5% a year, but I can actually use some of that for my overhead and my own pet projects. So I'm getting a huge tax break. And then the public interest really isn't served because I'm just sitting on this money. And I'm, I'm even going to pass it on to my great unborn great-grandchildren so they can also give it away. So, so a lot of the ultra-wealthy give to their own intermediaries. They're not giving directly to the food bank. They're not giving directly to the urgent 
you know, work of a nonprofit in their community. So that's that's the other thing. They're, they're, they're just not moving the money. It's being warehoused in these charity institutions, even after they get the tax break. So that's why you and I should be like a little bit like, wait a second here. If you're going to get a tax break from me, if you're going to reduce your taxes almost like 73 cents on the dollar, uh, then we expect you to move that money faster. We expect it to go directly to recipient groups. Uh, we, res- we think you shouldn't be spending it on your own overheads and family members' compensation. Um, and that's, that's, you know, so actually we, uh, we have a project that's really aimed at how do you reform the laws governing charity right now so the money moves and it's less of a tax dodge and more of something that's good for the rest of society. Before we get into the uh, latest report, which uh, was a joint report from uh, Fight Inequality and Alliance Institute for Policy Studies, Oxfam, and uh, Patriotic Millionaires, entitled uh, Taxing the World's Richest Would Raise $2.52 uh, trillion a Year. I guess I was wondering, when, when you talk about issues like global wealth inequality, how do you tackle these topics for people that maybe don't understand uh, the ways in which global wealth inequality can be very destabilizing and and things like, um, you know, I I think in my experience, if I talk about something like, hey, maybe there should be a a cap on something like inheritance, people get very nervous uh, or, or they have knee jerk reactions to it. How do you sort of address people that have a knee-jerk reaction to this kind of discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is uh, to connect the dots on how these extreme inequalities harm us, how they harm and undermine the quality of life for everybody, uh, in my view, including including wealthy people. Um, you know, I think the one re- important thing is to just say this is a democracy question. You know, when so few people have so much wealth, it distorts politics, the, you know, the electoral system, uh, money is power. And this kind of level of extreme wealth concentration is a real distortion of power. It's actually really bad for the economy. You know, you want an economy where most people have a little money in their pocket and they're able to participate in the economy and they're not feeling economically insecure and fearful. Um, but when you have this extreme inequality, you have volatility in the markets. You have uh, the creation of huge monopolies. So certain companies start to build up and, and have so much power that they can snuff out and push past uh, competition and they can distort the economy that way. Um, and then, you know, for a whole bunch of other reasons, you know, these extreme inequalities uh, keep us kind of locked into the current way of business as usual. And here we have this tremendous ecological crisis we need to be able to address. And we're sort of stuck on autopilot because of these wealth imbalances. Um, And this is the treasure that could be taxed and invested that could make for a much better quality of life for the rest of the world. I mean, even going into the pandemic, if we had taxed wealth and invested it in public health infrastructure, we would be in a completely different place. So I understand when people get nervous because when you talk about, you know, taxing inheritances because they think, oh, well, 
you know, we want to encourage innovation or we, you know, someday I hope to become affluent. So I don't want to be paying higher taxes. But right now, the imbalance of wealth is so extreme that it's undermining everything. Just take housing. I don't know if your listeners, most people are struggling right now to find affordable housing, affordable rental housing, let alone the ever out of reach dream of owning your own home. These inequalities of wealth fuel the housing divide and push the cost of housing out of reach for, for a huge segment of society. So that report, and I have it pulled up right now, it's uh, taxing extreme wealth, an annual tax on the world's multimillionaires and billionaires, what it would raise and what it could pay for. Uh, this is a 52-page report, and I was wondering if you, should, you could just give a maybe a brief summary of what is in this report. And I think it came out uh, on January 18th or thereabouts, uh, mid-January. Yep. Yeah, it came out in in conjunction with the Global World Economic Forum the, at Davos, Switzerland, uh, which went was a virtual event. But each, each January, they meet uh, the kind of elites of the world. And we have done this report with Oxfam. And this year, we looked at not just sort of how imbalanced or unequal wealth has become, but we also looked at what if we levied a fairly modest tax, annual annual tax on wealth, how much could be raised? Um, and there's a bunch of data points in there, but maybe I'll mention one, which is, you know, at the global level, there's 183,000 people who have $50 million or more. Um, and if we were to levy an annual wealth tax, and of course, this has to be done on a country by country basis. But if the 66 wealthiest countries in the world were most of the ultra wealthy live each and put in place a tax. And, and here's one example, you, you tax wealth over 5 million at 2%, wealth over 50 million at 3% up to a billion and wealth over a billion at 5%. So we're not talking about 99% taxes. We're not talking about 70% tax rates. We're talking about very small annual wealth taxes. That tax would raise $2.5 trillion, which is a huge amount of money. Just to put it in perspective, you could lift 2.3 billion people out of poverty. You could uh, vaccinate the world. You could have health, universal health coverage and what they call social protection in the rest of the world, just a decent social safety net for most people in the world, 3.6 billion people in the world, all that you could pay for with an annual wealth tax. So it, it, you know, when people sort of say, oh, there's not enough money or the wealthy don't have that much, you can't really tax them and you'll kill the goose that laid the golden egg. We're just talking about a very small sliver of a tax. It's not gonna change the quality of life for any of those people, but it would totally transform the quality of life for billions of people in the world. And that's the key point we're trying to make. I just had two more questions. Uh, the first is when we talk about tackling uh, global wealth inequality, I think there's certain people, especially uh, people that lean to the more right-wing end of the spectrum uh, that have a sort of misinformed view where they 
assume that dealing with global wealth inequality will mean the, oh, it'll mean the death of uh, the, the nation states. And, you know, it gets into this sort of conspiratorial, uh, like, oh, we're going to be living in a, a global government where there's no nation states. And I don't think that's what anyone is saying at all. I think it's a uh, a really misinformed view. I was wondering if you could speak to how people maybe misunderstand what the solutions to these problems are. Yeah, and I think, Joe, it's an important point. There is no global taxing authority that's going to le levy a global wealth tax. It's going to be at the national level. And, um, and But there are some interesting precedents. For instance, just in the last year, and the United States played an important role in this, uh, 133 countries agreed to a global corp minimum corporate income tax of 15%. So prior to now, uh, an Apple corporation or a Google would sort of play countries off against each other in the game of who will charge us less tax. And they would play, they kind of move their money around the, uh, between their subsidiaries and play countries off against each other. By creating this treaty, we're basically saying no country's going to charge less than 15%. So we're going to create a floor and some countries might charge more. We could do the same thing with an annual wealth tax. So countries are not giving up their sovereignty, but they are coming together across borders to set minimum standards. And I think that's, an, that's very possible. And that way you don't have, um, you know, the United States tries to impose a tax on Apple you don't have them rush off somewhere else because there's a floor and there's no place else for them to go. And so they're going to have to pay their fair share. I was so going to say that's, that's a, not to interrupt you, but that's a really good point because the, uh, the line I always hear when we talk about uh, taxing the ultra wealthiest, well, you know, if we tax them here, they'll, they'll just go off and, and do business elsewhere. And you're saying, well, there, there could be a fix for that problem. Absolutely. And, and uh, the United States, could play a, a really important role in sort of setting those standards. I mean, right now, the global ultra wealthy uh, taxes are almost optional because they can play so many global shell games and they can hide their money offshore and they can put it in anonymous shell companies and trusts. But if we created sort of a minimum standard and got, you know, 100 of the most important industrial countries to all sign on, you know, then, then you can, then you can envision a, situ a system where everybody's going to pay their fair share, and no nobody's going to be running off or tax dodging. An example is at the national level, we used to have no federal minimum wage. So some states in the north tried to raise their wage floor, but everyone would say, "Hey, you can't do that because you know that they're going to move their business to Mississippi." So coming out of the depression, we created a global, I'm sorry, a national minimum wage. So then companies were not competing on who in the race to the bottom. Now they still do because some states have higher minimum wages than the federal minimum wage, but at least we raised the floor. And I think that's the point here that could be done at the global level through, through treaties, through agreements. Last thing I wanted to touch on uh, real briefly here is uh you mentioned the World Economic Economic Forum and uh, you know Davos, and I I think I hear a lot more talk about that now. But I, I I sometimes think the talk about Davos goes in the wrong direction. Again, sometimes uh, a too 
conspiratorial direction for my liking. The way I view Davos personally is that it's a place where the ultra wealthy go and and they they think that they're you know solving the big problems and they can pat themselves on the back for it. And then they go back to doing business as usual and they come back next year to sort of make themselves feel good again. But really it's not accomplishing that much in addressing the issues. And if you hold a different view on that than me, uh, that's totally fine. But I, I wanted your take on it. No, I, I have the same view, which is, um, you know, just because they're meeting doesn't mean it's a coordinated conspiracy. It, it's, it's, it's actually a place where people do push each other on different ideas. Like the, there's this whole concept coming out of Davos of stakeholder capitalism, which is saying, okay, maybe shareholders, you know, they're, they're getting all the rewards, but what about communities and workers and, and um, Mother Earth, you know? Don't they aren't they stakeholders in enterprises? So, you know, big ideas, solutions get talked about. Um, but for the most part, nothing much changes. But it is a it is a place where uh, you know, the global billionaire class, a huge number of people, fly their private jets into Switzerland and and talk for a couple of days and try to solve big problems. And it is a place where people can maybe hold one another accountable to some higher standards. Um, one thing that's changed, Joe, is public attitudes about billionaires have really shifted during the pandemic. You know, I think that idea, the trickle-down idea, we're going to give tax breaks to the wealthy, the wealthy are going to be the benevolent overlords, and we're all going to benefit from their charitable giving or their activities in the private sector. That, that idea is, is not popular anymore. People are like, wait a second here. These concentrations of wealth are really harming the rest of society. And that's a lot of treasure that's being sequestered that could be taxed and invested in making our societies healthier, better places to live. So, you know, 70, 80% of the public in the US supports taxing the ultra wealthy and making these investments. Um, and that's, that to me is promising. And I just wanted to add to that, I, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like there could be real dystopian consequences to not addressing the problems of global wealth inequality. You know, I, I, I always worry about, you know, if equality gets to a certain level, I think it causes, as we're seeing now, more polarization of society. I, I don't even think it necessarily benefits the ultra wealthy. I think it hurts them in a way too. And I, I think we can see increases in violence and things like things of that nature uh, on a, a social level, on a cultural level, if we don't deal with these issues. So I was wondering if you could comment on that in closing. Yeah, I, I, I basically, um, I, I guess I agree entirely because I see how these extreme inequalities, the deeper they get, the more difficult it will be to get out of the rut, if you will. Uh, the, more, you know, the more power concentrates in fewer hands, the more they use their power to rig the rules to concentrate wealth further. And so you can see a dangerous dystopian spiral into the future. But uh, as somebody who grew up in a wealthy family, I've been trying to argue to other wealthy people, this isn't good for anybody. This is going to create volatility. It's going to create dis discord and polarization. It already is. It's going to undermine the quality of life. And it's going to uh, create huge harms and resentments and generational trauma 
that isn't really going to, no, nobody's going to want to live in the societies of 20, 30 years out, the blade, the kind of Blade Runner future, uh, where wealth is going to be so extremely concentrated with most people living not great lives. So I, I try to make the case that the wealthy should bring their wealth out of the shadows, bring it, you know, pay your, pay your darn taxes. Sure, give some to philanthropy, but give it to localities, give it to state governments, give it to cities, invest in place and making the society healthy for everyone. That's in everyone's interests. Well, I want to thank you, Chuck Collins, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, if there's anything else uh, you wanted to say in closing, I always like to give last word to my guests and maybe uh, allow them to say why people should be concerned and what they hope people get out of this conversation. What do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation? And uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? Yeah, well, I guess the, the one thing I would say is uh, it, it does... You know, if you really look at these trends, it's very alarming and concerning, but it just doesn't have to be this way. Um, there's, there's nothing permanent about this. Um, you know, there's nothing fixed. It's a human created problem. Basically for 30 plus years, we've tipped the rules, rigged the rules of the economy to benefit wealth holders at the expense of wage earners. And we can very quickly rewire the economy in a different direction. And, you know, something even as, uh, you know, like the Build Back Better legislation that's currently stalled out would be absolutely a step in the right direction. And there already are people at city and local levels who are trying to address inequality where they have some sense of power and agency. So, um, so I would encourage people to get involved, learn about how these problems touch you, and then join some of the efforts at the state and national level to reverse it. And that's where, again, I would invite people to check out inequality.org. Um, there's a little newsletter I send out every Monday. It comes from me on, you know, what is it people are doing to address these inequalities? Here's the bad news, but here's the good news. And uh, we even try to have a little bit of a sense of humor. So, um, yeah, check out inequality.org and get plugged in to state and local campaigns to address these inequalities, starting with things like eliminating student debt or reducing student debt for the next generation or making access to rental housing and affordable housing more possible for more people. Those are directly things that could, could be changed by organized social movements. Uh, putting pressure and winning winning elections. Um, so the good news is these are all really popular. These ideas are popular. Um, and we just have to get the politicians to follow the lead of where most people are already at. Well, thank you again, Chuck Collins. And I'm glad we could end on a positive note. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Ambassador Akbar Ahmed and Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies. Please be sure to keep up with his work at inequality.org. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, 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 please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Parallax Views. 
I have a few sponsors, but it is mainly you, the listener, that keeps this show going. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between at my Patreon page at, once again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And a note that at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, and the Mayor Framework, who I hope we'll be working more with in the future. Have to get that all sorted out. I hope uh, you're listening out there, uh, those associated with the Mayor Framework. My apologies for not being in touch as of late, but I've been very busy, and I promise we are going to be collaborating more in the future. In any case, if you want your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views... Consider joining those listeners and supporting me at the $10 tier or above at, one more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike you to Parallax Jerry with Jerry The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.